Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Communities and Buildings, a Living Architecture Monitor podcast from Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. Thank you very much for joining us. It's hot, very hot, even in places where traditionally it's never very hot, like Portland, Oregon, and even London, England. Many of these places don't even have air conditioning units because they're not used to hotter temperatures. Summers in both the Northern and Southern hemispheres are making urban life rather uncomfortable and in some cases, even unbearable. So today, to kick off our first green infrastructure podcast, we're going to explore the urban heat island and how green infrastructure can help us address this pressing issue. And our guest today, most appropriately, is my longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Brad Bass. A little bit about Dr. Bass. Dr. Brad Bass received his PhD in geography from Penn State University in 1989. He's been working with green walls since 1996, and in 1998, he co-authored the report Greenbacks for Green Roofs, the first green roof publication in English. Mr. Bass's team was one of the first to pair a uh, green roof simulation model with a building energy model to assess potential energy savings with a green roof. Dr. Bass's team also pioneered the use of dynamic mesoscale atmospheric simulation models with green roofs in urban areas to assess the impacts of green roofs on the urban heat, heat island. In 2012, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities awarded Dr. Bass the Lifetime Achievement Award for green infrastructure research. In the last 10 years, uh, Dr. Bass has frequently taught courses to introduce green walls and on design, designing biodiverse green roofs for architects, engineers, and landscapers. Dr. Bass and his team have worked on other benefits of green infrastructure, developing a manual for a do-it-yourself integrated green wall biofilter system to treat gray water and the impact of biodiverse green roofs on energy consumption. Recently, Dr. Bass and his team have been developing simulations of vertical wetlands to assess their potential impact on water quality. Dr. Bass, I know you're very busy, so thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. We look forward to speaking with you. Um, it seems that we are like breaking heat records around the world. I mean, for those who don't really understand, you know, what's going on here, can you just tell us what's causing these heat waves or heat domes? Uh, is it climate change? Is it something else? What's going on? So the, the heat dome is the right word. You can imagine that we actually have a dome over large parts of the continent that's trapping warm air. And the reason we have that is really twofold. One is due to the movement of warm air from the ocean, Pacific Ocean, from west to east. Uh, this is actually a phenomenon that occurs in our global climate, regardless of climate change. Where climate change does come in is it's changed the uh, Arctic temperatures, which in turn have changed the dynamics of um, upper river of atmosphere called the jet stream. And this has basically led to the formation of these domes that's allowing uh, the heat to stay trapped in one place. Locally, there would be some other impacts. So for example, in Southern Ontario, the fact that we have, uh, we're close to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, that's a pipeline for warm, uh, the Gulf of Mexico is a source of warm air and 
basically the atmosphere has set up a pipeline to move that warm air into our region almost continuously under these conditions. So the heating of the Arctic, if I understand you, has affected the jet stream. Now, what actually is the jet stream? A lot of people talk about it and stuff, but a few people really understand what is the jet stream? It's so, definitely not jet planes flying around. Or no, anything. no. Imagine, we can't see it, but imagine a ribbon of air moving in the upper atmosphere that more or less separates north and south. It, it, it's, high, it's higher up. It's not, it separates, let's say, the Arctic regions or the northern regions from the rest of us. Uh, so, it's, so it's spinning around the top of the world, yeah, around yeah, the Arctic, yeah. separating the Arctic temperatures the cold, from yeah. the rest of the planet. And in a normal, what we used to call normal, the jet stream was, I won't say totally smooth, but pretty smooth. You, you basically didn't get a lot of movement, especially in the summer, uh, of the air back and forth. Once the jet stream becomes a little bit more dynamic, which is what's happened with the warming of the Arctic, uh, it can create essentially conduits for the movement of air from one part of the continent to the other, and essentially allowing regions of high pressure to form adjacent to regions of low pressure. Where we get high pressure, we essentially get our nice blue clear skies, uh, but also very little rain and the warmer weather. Now, because we're pumping this warm air up from the Gulf of Mexico, uh, because of the way the atmosphere is set up, we're getting, uh, and because of the heat dome, we're now really getting this trap of, of warm air, this container of warm air over our region. And it, you know, there's no way to really remove it. it. Just, you know, the atmosphere goes through these cycles and at some point the pressures will start to break up and that dome will dissipate. Okay. Um, thanks for that. Uh, that's a, it's pretty complicated stuff, but it's important to understand the sort of the bigger picture on a more micro scale. You know, I know when you uh, drive your car in, many cars have uh, thermometers on them now from the countryside into the city. You actually can watch the temperature increase as you move towards the city. And this has been called the urban heat island effect. Can you explain what the urban heat island effect is and what's causing it? Yeah, so the urban heat island is just what you said, Stephen. Uh, it's the change in temperature between the urbanized areas and the surrounding areas. And just from observation, uh, during the daytime, it seems to vary between one and three degrees, but in the evening, it can go as high as 12 degrees. That's been observed. So 12 degree difference between, let's say, the urban core and the surrounding less dense uh, urban area, or actually the surrounding agricultural areas or surrounding natural areas to a city. So what's causing, want, what's causing this to happen? Before even go as cause, I want to just emphasize that number. Think about it. The temperature forecast for the evening is 20, 22 degrees, because we're not getting that cool in the evening. And now you're adding another uh, a bump up to that temperature as high as 12 degrees. Imagine that, you know, so regardless, the 20 degrees 
in the evening becomes 30 or 32 degrees if you're in a very dense urban area. I want to emphasize that so people understand how serious this is. What yeah. causes that? There are actually a few causes. Um, one cause and the main cause is probably the fact that we've removed so much vegetation when we build a city. Now, what that does is, what does vegetation do? Well, vegetation intercepts sunlight. And what does that sunlight do? It actually works to move water back to the atmosphere. We can't see it, but the leaves of your plants have a lot of water on them. The sunlight uh, helps convert that into vapor, moves back up to the atmosphere, but the sun, that sunlight isn't absorbed into the leaf of the plant, which means the plant leaf stays fairly cooler. So what happens on a dark surface? All that solar energy is absorbed. And it all, and if it's a very dark surface, it pretty much all comes back as heat. Like so, a, sort of like a hot, sort of like a hot plate. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Imagine a dark wall. They you can buy a dark wall to heat your room in the winter. And it's that principle: absorb the sunlight during the day and release it slowly at night. And that's exactly what the city does. It acts in that way. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, the city isn't all dark. That's true. But all of these hard surfaces that are made of asphalt, concrete, metals, plastics, they all, they're all good at absorbing the solar radiation and re-rating parts of it back as heat. Now, what does that mean? The surface of your lawn, if your lawn is watered, so water is important here because you have to have water that can be moved back to the atmosphere. The surface of your lawn or let's say um, a meadow might be about 25 degrees on a hot day. That, centigrade, um, you're talk, centigrade, centigrade, you're talking. Centigrade, yes, I'm sorry, centigrade. Um, take away, take it away and replace it with a sidewalk uh, and it might go up to 50 degrees centigrade. So when you talk about frying an egg on the pavement, you know, I mean, the pavement can get hot enough to, I don't know if you could really fry an egg, but it can get hot enough that you will feel it. When you've walked, with bare feet on pavement and it's burned your feet and you have to, ah, and you have to jump off of it. That's why. Yeah. So there's been a problem with pets uh, and pet owners increasingly yeah. the, the pads of uh, dogs, you know, the, and their feet getting burned from, um, from the temperatures of surfaces in, in during. Yeah. The and so we have these take away the plants, replace them with dark surfaces and other surfaces that absorb energy and re-radiate more of it as heat back to us. Buildings themselves contain a lot of thermal mass and that allows for a daytime heat storage, which is slowly released at night, helping to explain why the evenings are warmer, uh, at least due to the urban heat island. Now, then you have these hard roads and sidewalks. It rains. If the rain could stay on that sidewalk, as it evaporated, it would cool that surface. But because the sidewalk and roads are so hard, parking lots, et cetera, the water moves right off of that surface. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. essentially, you don't get that nice evaporative cooling that you would get on a meadow, a lawn, a forest, et cetera. Um, now, the other thing is we build cities so they look like canyons. Tall buildings, narrow streets, that, that also traps air and reduces the, the wind, wind flow into that canyon, which would basically mix things up 
And if you have warm air at the surface of that canyon, it can't really move out of the way. The, the buildings are just blocking the wind flow. Uh, we have waste heat from all sorts of things we use, vehicles, buildings, air conditioners, they all pump heat into the air. That can uh, cause local warming. Even the burning of fossil fuels themselves can help warm the air. And then finally, if you see that layer of haze on a nice hot day over the urban environment, besides being you know, pollution, which can have other health effects, that layer of haze will trap heat like a greenhouse over the city. So you have all these things working together uh, just to either make the surfaces of the city warmer, which makes the air of the city warmer, or to help trap heat, more heat uh, in the urban environment. That's plus, it sounds like you, plus it sounds like you have all these buildings that are cooling themselves in, internally and in discharging that heat out into yeah. the environment as well. Yeah. So, so pumping, air, pumping air, hot air. If you're using an air standard air conditioner, that's exactly what you're doing. Right. Plus the thermal mass of the buildings is releasing heat into the urban environment in the evening. So, so thermal mass, you mean that the, the, the density of the building, the materials that make up the building yeah. absorb and store heat and then yeah. release it at, at night? Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Wow. So it's amazing. So we've designed and planned uh, our cities in a manner that really um, exacerbates the urban heat island effect and not just in one way, but in, in multiple ways. I think that's yeah, mul essentially what you're saying. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Our, our cities are essentially, our standard design of a city does just that. Mm. It exacerbates the uh, urban heat island effect. And again, I want to emphasize three degrees during the daytime, a one to three degrees, and uh, up to 12 degrees in the evening. This is significant. You know, mm -hmm. Even the three degrees can move the temperature from non-critical to critical. Well, I would think in particular, now that we're experiencing the jet stream is starting to become, as you say, dynamic and it's wobbling and changing the, the buildup of heat in many uh, parts of the world. On top of that, you've got the urban heat island uh, effect in, in our major urban areas where, where most people live. What's the relationship to, the, to these two different phenomena that are going on? Are they... Are they, they counteract each other in some way? Are they are they making situation worse? Like what's, how would you describe that? Well, I, I don't want to actually say, um, the relationship is probably a little bit less direct. You know, what's causing the atmosphere to change globally is the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which are helping to warm the atmosphere and a warmer atmosphere is a more dynamic atmosphere. Cities contribute to that. So anything we do which uses more fossil fuels helps put more carbon or other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So for example, if because of this extra heat, we increase the use of electricity for cooling and refrigeration, well, that's fuel you have to burn to produce electricity. If you're burning oil, natural gas, coal, you're gonna be releasing carbon into the atmosphere. Now think how many people live in urban areas around the world. It's over so, 50%. Yeah, so the, the, there is a, globally, there is a definitive urban contribution to the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for that, Brad. We're gonna take a, a short break. 
We'll be back in a minute with uh, more interesting uh, information and insight from Dr. Brad Bass. Cities Alive is a multidisciplinary conference bringing together the best designers, product manufacturers, researchers, and policymakers in the field of living architecture and green infrastructure. This year, Cities Alive is back and in person, looking at green infrastructure and water in a changing climate in Philadelphia from October 16th to 19th. Heat waves and flooding are increasing in frequency and intensity, and our communities have an urgent need to adapt to the growing impacts of climate change. Join us in October to hear from influential keynotes such as Naomi Davis, founder and CEO of Blacks and Green, Howard Newkrug, executive director at the Water Center at Penn, and more. You can also browse the trade show floor, learn hands-on at our biophilic design workshop, or see the sights on our networking cruise on the Delaware River. So register today at citiesalive.org and come join us in the city of brotherly love. Hi, uh, I'm Stephen Peck, founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. Welcome back to our podcast. We're discussing the urban heat island uh, effect and what can be done about it with green infrastructure with none other than Dr. Brad Bass. Brad, you were uh, mentioning earlier um, about the important consequences of a 12 degree centigrade nighttime increase in urban temperatures relative to the countryside and a 1.1 to 3 degree uh, increase during the daytime. So what, what are the consequences of our sort of superheating our, our cities up during a period of climate change? Well, the first consequence is we, because we have it in, in the Western world, we tend to re- rely more on air conditioning. And of course, our refrigerators have to work harder as well. That uses electricity. And in many parts of the world, that will uh, cause more carbon to be released. Not everywhere, some parts of the world, electricity is produced by hydro, nuclear, uh, but um, in many parts of the world, there is a direct link between the cooling and the increase of carbon during the summer. Uh, Does that mean that if we are able to cool our cities, we can reduce electricity consumption as well? Yes, um, every degree Let's, let's take the range 20 to 25, that's sort of a good range. Within that range, we know that every degree centigrade increases probably causes a one to 2% increase in the amount of elect, uh, air conditioning demand or electricity demand, um, which basically requires about 5% more electricity. So in some sense, you can think of this when it goes from 20 to 21, we could be increasing electricity demand by 5% to cool down our environments. That could, uh, be, that could be pretty, you're talking about 5% for all electricity consumption in a city? Uh, yes, yeah, so it, so it could be, um, it could be quite significant. Wow. Yeah. And, and this has been shown in, in uh, you know, I, I've seen this in different studies now, so, it's, I mean, the number is five to 10% because depending where your city is and, and how, how hot it's getting. So air conditioning on an urban wide basis really can uh, increase the amount of electricity. And of course, 
when you do that, you put a strain on, on the system. If every city in North America is now doing that at the same time, you put a real strain on the system, which, you know, we've all seen it. There have been rolling brownouts and blackouts this summer. So there's energy related and climate change related yeah. uh, consequences from the urban heat well, island. Right. What else, and, uh, what else is well, going on? Um, going back to the energy, someone has to pay for that energy. So there's a so even if you're not concerned about the uh, carbon or your electricity source is carbon free, you're still paying for the electricity. Right. Um, and there are impacts on human health from increasing temperature. A, a lot of times we don't, we're not even made aware of this because someone dies or goes to the hospital and the cause might be recorded as, you know, asthma, heart attack, et cetera, but that might've been triggered by the heat. So uh, I read a recent stat for Toronto where, where that said 120 deaths a year can be directly attributed to heat, but indirectly it's much higher because again, we don't always record heat as part of the cause. Uh, when it gets hotter, certain types of pollution become uh, form more quickly, particularly smog. Uh, so if you have asthma or other types of respiratory illnesses, increasing smog could be uh, it could really be the difference between you going outside and you staying inside. Are and these health impacts shared equally among all the people in a city or are there differences in different parts of cities? Yeah. So the, um, the heat isn't, uh, I mean, the heat itself, uh, changes regionally, you know, generally you can assume it's hotter where it's much denser and, cools down as you move away from the those dense parts of the city. But there are still air people who don't have air conditioning, you know, for, for income reasons. Uh, and quite frankly, they're living in buildings that were built to stay warm in the winter. And if you're living in a building that was built to stay warm in the winter, you know, it's going to be very difficult to, uh, you know, stay in that build, stay cool in that building, even with a fan um, over the summer. You know, an interesting, people forget things because we don't do them anymore. Let me take you back to Kensington Market in the 1930s, an area of Toronto, very densely populated, uh, of course, no air conditioning, houses built to be warm, clothing styles much different. So the idea of wearing shorts and short sleeves wasn't, people dressed with a lot more layers of clothing. At night, there was only one park in Kensington. People would drag their mattresses into that park and sleep in the park. No way. Now, that was an adaptation uh, to a very hot night. Okay, now think of where you live. Think of where your local park is. Are you comfortable dragging your mattress to the local park uh, if you don't have, if your air conditioning breaks down? Probably not, uh, although yeah. I can see that. The park would be cooler because you've explained about the uh, the, the the water uh, being used by the plants to cool down yeah. the area, and we know parks are a lot cooler. Um, are there a so are there social equity issues here uh, it, with the urban heat island and its consequences? Yes, yes. So um, the social equity, I think, really follows uh, income. You know, find the areas that are our lower income areas, you'll probably find lower use, lower uh, rates of air conditioning, or lower amounts of air conditioning, just 
a fewer number of air conditioners. And, you know, and those people who live in those areas, they feel it more. Uh, I mean, and, and I, I don't know yet, for example, if anyone has tracked deaths that could be associated with heat with areas of the city. So I can't, I can't go into it that way. Uh, now, in terms of pollution, um, pollution is a bit of a different animal. Smog is pretty ubiquitous across southern Ontario. So no matter where you live, you're going to be exposed to smog. You're, you're not going to escape that. But haze, um, you know, may, may differ regionally. Uh, I haven't really looked at, although again, it's pretty widespread once you get those long heat waves. Uh, you, uh, you may see the haze, you know, goes all the way. It just spreads right across the city. I remember flying into Toronto. This is 2001 and it was pretty hot and dry. And we flew right through this brown layer that, that was over Pearson, mm -hmm. which again, is not over the densest area of the city. Uh, but if you live in an area that has a lot of traffic, so almost imagine like constant traffic because of where you live, that's putting more heat into the atmosphere. If you live in an area which has fewer trees, but a lot of building mass, your nights are warmer. So there really is a geography to this heat and what I, and there's a geography to poverty. And I suspect you'll find uh, a fairly high correspondence, if not a meaningful correlation between those two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So environmental justice and social justice kind of over overlap uh, yeah. in our cities when it comes to, to both the temperatures experienced and also, you know, the effects of uh, air pollution, like rates of asthma, which yeah. tend to be much higher in poor neighborhoods and the capacity to um, uh, adapt becomes less if the, the resources aren't available yeah. for things like air conditioning. Yeah, uh, and so the it's worst, a pretty serious problem. Yeah, the worst off, of course, being homeless in the downtown core. You know, right. if you have a night right. that's not really cooling down, and you have to sleep outside. You don't have air conditioning. Finding a in the winter, finding a place that's warm enough outside is an issue. And then in the summer, finding now a place that's cool enough uh, at night when, uh, during a heat wave can be a problem. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned plants uh, and their ability to help us cool cities. You know, over the last twenty years or so, you know, the term green infrastructure has become much more commonplace, also known as natural infrastructure. Um, and it's been said that this can help our cities adapt to climate change, you know, both, uh, you know, problems with storm water and lack of green space, but also reducing the urban uh, heat island effect. What does green infrastructure mean to, mean to you, uh, Dr. Bass? Okay. And Before I, I actually, I, I'm, I'm going to divert a bit. I'm going to go back to the last question because it relates to storm water and I want to get this in people's head. Um, there are two other effects of the urban heat island that we don't often mention. One is quite serious environmentally. Pavement heats up. The, uh, now, what that ends up doing is heating up the water that falls on the pavement during when it does rain. Then this water runs into the lake or the river, wherever you live. It has effects on the aquatic ecosystem. Uh, sometimes fatal effects on the aquatic ecosystem. Sure. So heated storm, letting stormwater just run off over the hot pavement. So I wanna put that in people's mind. 
uh, is a problem. The other thing which you don't may not realize is we may be increasing you know, the presence of animals and insects we don't like in the urban environment as the urban environment gets warmer and these animals and insects prefer the warmer weather. So there may be an effect that people haven't thought about, which has to do with things, you know, uh, we've seen a lot more wildlife in urban areas, but more specifically insects you don't really like to have around you in the summer. Well, as the cities get warmer, you may have more of them. Like mosquitoes, are you yeah. talking about, or what are you uh, talking? I, about? I think uh, I think mosquitoes is probably the big one. Now I'm not an expert on this, so I, all I've really been able to ascertain is insects. Um, but uh, but there are a number of insects that we know do prefer warmer weather, and uh, I think it's something we have to monitor, um, especially when you get insects that could carry you know dangerous viruses. Okay, let's go to the question you were asking. Um, so uh, green infrastructure uh, is, as you said, it's both natural. There are ravines in cities. There are, there's um, areas where original uh, vegetation is still in place. And it's also artificially engineered, uh, which is, can be done on the ground, on the walls, and uh, on the roofs uh, as well. And there are all sorts of forms which this can take, which gives us a lot of flexibility for how to do this in a city. Now, remember, green infrastructure, you need, you need to get the water. We'll talk about that later. But if water is there for evapotranspiration, so water is moved to the surface of the plants, and then the sunlight shines on those plants and turns that water into vapor, which reduces the surface temperature of those plants. So the, what we call evaporative cooling, if um, that occurs, uh, the green infrastructure engineering now allows us to really do that on all sorts of urban surfaces. And it's important. So people don't think, don't realize this. You don't only want to cool the temperature down where you walk, which you do. But if the temperature is really increasing um, at 10 or 12 stories, or and that can have the, um, dangerous effects as well serious consequences. So what's nice about the rooftops is a rooftop will cool the, cool the temperature above, at a certain layer above the city. A lot of rooftops would have a much larger effect. And some of that effect will trickle down to where we live uh, where, or where we walk. But many of us live at the 12th story or the, 10, or the 15th story. So we live higher up. We want the cooler temperatures, not only where we walk, but also where we live. Uh, so you've done some of the first modeling on on the impact of yeah. multiple green roof installations in a in an area of a city. What what kind of research have you done, and what what, what were the results in a nutshell? We, we did two types of research. One running um, uh, essentially a weather model, version of a weather model over a city, and adding a fifty percent up to fifty percent green roof coverage. We did that in different scenarios. And what we saw was a one to two degree cooling. It and it wasn't consistent. It, it moved across the city. It wasn't in all areas of the city, but we had about a third of the city, which really uh, showed a significant, um, at least one degree cooling and a few areas, two degrees cooling. We repeated those experiments with a different model using just like one block of a city or, or small areas of the city where we could actually 
you know, place the roofs exactly where we wanted them, place trees where we wanted them. And the results were pretty consistent. You know, that two degree cooling uh, was, was pretty consistent, you know, on average uh, through a 24 hour period. So we're pretty confident in saying, yes, green roofs. And interesting thing here, we primarily really just looked at green roofs. Green roofs will, if put together uh, on a large scale, large enough scale, will make a city cooler. Right. That's really uh, very interesting. Hey, we're going to take a short break, uh, and then we'll be right back with Dr. Brad Bass and find out a little bit more about what we can do to uh, tackle the, the challenge of the urban heat island effect. Don't go away. The Living Architecture Academy is an online learning platform dedicated to bringing you the best training courses, conference recordings, and more on green infrastructure, low-impact development, and sustainable design practices. For over 15 years, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities has provided professional development opportunities to over 15,000 green infrastructure industry professionals from around the world. Learn all about integrated water management with our Net Zero Water for Buildings and Sites course, or begin earning your Green Roof Professional Accreditation, all from the comfort of your home. All courses on the Living Architecture Academy are offered on demand, do not expire, and are approved for AIA, ASLA, and GRP continuing education. So you can learn at your own pace, on your own schedule, and earn CEUs. Visit livingarchitectureacademy.com and start your professional development today. Welcome back. Uh, my name is Stephen Peck. I'm the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. Today, we're talking about the urban heat island effect with Dr. Brad Bass. Thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, Dr. Bass, you know, we've talked now about the urban heat island, um, how it uh, occurs, the many things that are making our cities so much hotter than the surrounding countryside. Um, and you've given some examples of what the impacts of that heating are. Um, and um, now we're starting to talk a little bit of how vegetative systems can, uh, green infrastructure can help uh, address some of these, uh, some of these issues. Um, you get, you travel around a lot in your work. Um, you know, Toronto, the city of Toronto has been a, a leader in terms of green roof policy as uh, we now uh, have, a, we've had a mandate now for green roofs in Toronto for more than a decade. And it's resulted in close to 9 million square feet of additional green space, which will help cool the city down. What other jurisdictions do you think are doing well uh, right now in North America to try to use green infrastructure to tackle some of the, the challenges we've been talking about? What stands out? So from, from the start, uh, I mean, when I first started with the urban heat island, I was turning to New York City. You know, wherever, whatever I was thinking and wherever I originally thought I was, I found that a lot of it had already been thought about in New York in terms of research or policy. So, so New York City definitely stands out and there's a lot of green roof coverage there. Uh, Washington uh, certainly has, uh, and in fact, we did a, a study, I was part of a study where we looked at the benefits of green roof in the US, but primarily in Washington, DC, uh, Philadelphia, uh, not, and Philadelphia, I can also talk about not only in terms of, you know, the coverage, but also policy. And, you know, if you look at Philadelphia, you get, you get an interesting contrast to Toronto in terms of what is the best type of policy for 
uh, encouraging green infrastructure? Are we better off encouraging uh, a better specific benefit such as water? And Chicago did the same thing when they looked at temperature. So should we follow Chicago and Philadelphia as policy models or should we be looking at Toronto where the policy was, let's have a green roof target because of all the benefits. And I, I found, I've had some very interesting discussions with my US colleagues in those cities about which is the more effective way to go. And I, I won't comment on one or the other, I just wanna raise that issue that we have the ability to look at different policy experiments. If we leave green roofs for a bit, I would go down to Florida, um, there, where the area of Sarasota, there's a lot of interesting work going on with microforests and the development of um, food, for, uh, food forests uh, using green, inf green infrastructure for carbon drawdown. Uh, so again, I, I think there's some good stuff going on across the US in that area, but I know Florida's, uh, there's some really innovative ideas coming out of the Sarasota area. And then on the West Coast of the US, um, you know, of course we'll see San Francisco, a lot of great ideas. Uh, Seattle, a lot of Portland, you mentioned Portland already, but Portland's one of the leaders in green roof coverage. And uh, in Texas, uh, Austin has a, a lot of uh, active green roof people. So I think these are some of the centers that I would, I would look at. Um, the middle of the country, you can't, you can't ignore you know, what's going on in Kansas. And so there's certainly, I think you'll find this, this um, technology is, is really growing everywhere. And now that it's getting warm, I just think you're gonna see more of it uh, happening, uh, more adoption. So you, you see, I think policymakers are starting to really wake up to the fact that green infrastructure can solve uh, some of the pressing urban problems. I, and I, I, one thing I know is that um, much of this has been driven actually by stormwater management yeah. uh, as opposed to the urban heat island. And it's only since we're starting to have these experience, these freakishly hot temperatures across North America that the, uh, you know, heat and the, the danger of heat and the, you know, the negative impacts of heat are starting to take center stage. Um, what do you think the additional benefits associated with implementing green roofs and walls policy in a city are? Um, obviously, urban heat island is a reduction is a, a benefit. Um, Stormwater management can be a benefit. What other other benefits come to mind and when thinking about um, reasons to implement policies that support these technologies? If, if you're going to surround a building with roofs, green roofs and green walls, one or the other, uh, in some cases, green walls might be a preferred alternative, you're going to see a reduction in most likely in energy consumption. It might not always be large, it might be smaller than we might like, but sometimes it's quite significant, uh, especially if you get roofs and walls covered. Uh, walls do something interesting as well. We, we haven't talked about the winter scenario. A green wall will probably go, if it's in the north, will probably go bare in the winter. But if the vines or the, the shrubs or whatever are, are in place, they're going to act as a windbreak along that building, uh, reducing the wind. Buildings have wind chill as well, just like people do, suffer from wind chill. And you're going to actually be able to reduce the heating internally in a building from essentially the winter green, the, the green wall that's, even though the leaves are gone, it still has an effect on the wind chill um, in the mm -hmm. winter. So, that's interesting because uh, many of those green walls in the, in northern, uh, the northern 
temp, uh, cities that experience negative freezing temperatures, they get wrapped yeah. uh, with burlap uh, in the winter, like like other forms of um, vegetation. That's not, that's not really a problem as long as you leave the, the wall in place. You don't move it. If it's a, if it's along the building, it's like putting a coat along the building. Right. So so wrapping in burlap is not a problem. Uh, if you had a green wall that was really portable and you could take it down in the winter, then you would lose that benefit. Um, even if, uh, so, uh, but, um, and green roofs have a winter effect as well. They can have a winter effect as well, especially with snow cover. Uh, they form a nice blanket over the roof that helps keep heat in the building. So I don't want to dwell too much on that because we're talking about summer heat, but there is a winter benefit, a winter thermal benefit to green roofs and walls directly on the building. Uh, of course, you mentioned the water. Um, it's been recognized for a while that green infrastructure, both the natural and the constructed green infrastructure, play a role in managing stormwater runoff. And for many cities, that's been the issue for them, either in terms of flooding or in terms of water quality and green infrastructure can be a way to remove pollutants from stormwater, uh, uh, very effective at nutrients, for example, managing nutrients, but also to manage where the water is and how fast it's flowing. Uh, so it's part of a flood mitigation a strategy. Uh, we talked about pollution, but we haven't talked about the fact that, you know, tree especially, but also, you know, greenery is very good at filtering pollutants out of the air not just out of the water. So I think uh, that's an important benefit. Uh, one of the things um, that- If I is, could stop you there, Brad, how, how exactly does, does vegetation filter pollutants from the air? Because I, I think a lot of people, we talk about it, but how, what does that actually, how does that work? Um, well, leaves, we don't see it, of course. You think of a leaf as a solid green surface, right? But it actually- Smooth, solid and smooth. Yeah, full of holes. And those holes allow the movement of gases in and out. And essentially, pollution in the air is a gas. Um, it can, some of it's particulate matter, of course, but essentially, if there's a molecule there that can pass through the hole of a leaf, it'll stay in the plant. And some, and some of these plant pollution relationships are such that the plants become very good filters for certain types of pollutants. Uh, and I, I think, so it's not just carbon and you know, carbon dioxide, of course, plants need to require that. But when you pass an airstream over a, through a tree canopy or over a shrub or through a meadow, you're going to get um, some scrubbing going on. Mm -hmm. In fact, a colleague of mine, when he builds green walls, he talks about his plants acting as scrubbers of the air, scrubbing stuff out of the air. And he said, that's a an apt analogy for thinking about how uh, a green wall operates in a, in a somewhat of both either in an indoor or an outdoor environment. Uh, mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the other benefits, which you've done a lot of work on, Stephen, I think hopefully that maybe you'll have another podcast with more of an expert on this, but um, I think we really have to acknowledge the uh, burgeoning use of green infrastructure for food production in, in urban areas, on roofs, on walls, and urban forests. Uh, I, I think there's all sorts of opportunities in the urban area to combine green infrastructure with food production. 
And I don't want to, I just put it out there. People should know about it. There's a lot going on in many cities. There are a few restaurants who've created, who built their own green roofs just to supply the restaurant with local food. But there, but this can be a community benefit. You can really look at the link between urban agriculture, feeding people, and um, and green infrastructure. There's some costs there. I mean, you have to you know make sure you do it properly. But I think the potential is is tremendous, uh, and I, th- I think that should be acknowledged as well. Um, plus, I think. I, this is there's really some mixed literature on this. I don't want to I, I don't want to push it as if I'm an expert, but the fact is, there are certain people, a lot of people, who really get a mental boost from being able to spend some time within a green area, whether that is a green area on a roof, whether that's a, a park, whether that's a forest, and green infrastructure allows us to increase the green space. In areas that might normally be have been considered uh, more of a desert, uh, just basically hard surfaces. So I, I think we can look at that. And Stephen, I hope you remember this. In 2009, your organization released what I thought was a pioneering study. And I'll say that word again, pioneering study on the social, quantifying the social benefits of green roofs and trying to put them all into a I think you used a, a currency and like you put them in terms of currency and you identified about maybe six to eight benefits. I thought this report was phenomenal. Yeah, maybe that's the that's the living architecture performance tool, I think, that you're referring no, to. No, no, this predates that. Oh. I, I contributed to the living architecture report. No, this predates that. This was done by, uh, he was in Montreal at the time. Um, and I know him, but... Re- Raymond? Ray Tomalty? Yes, Ray Tomalty. Mm. Uh, and oh, yeah. I, I was there when he presented the findings the first time for the report, and it was like I was cheering internally. If I could have stood up on my chair and go, you go for it, you know, you got yeah. it, I would have done that. I yeah. thought, um, and I really think someone needs to take Ray's work. So I think Ray, Ray just opened the door, and it means that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, he did. Yeah, and if, yeah. someone, if someone, there's a graduate student listening to this, looking for a PhD thesis, especially if you're in the area of environmental psychology, perhaps urban sociology, but even architecture or planning, uh, there's a lot you could do there. And the fact is, you don't have to start at the Ray started at the basement with nothing, and he yeah. really put something interesting together. That but was the economics. That was a study yeah. trying to get at the economics of um, these benefits that we've been yeah. talking about throughout the show, try to actually put a dollar figure to them. And that's an ongoing piece of work, Brad, that uh, keeps evolving as ecological economics uh, continues to evolve and so forth. But we will, I assure you, uh, do future podcasts yeah. on food production and green infrastructure, as well as um you know, the economics component of it. Um, those are both really important topics. And I thank you for bringing them to our attention because we're, we're going to go after that. Yeah. So just in terms of wrapping up here, I'm just wondering uh, one sort of final question, just kind of a big one, is what you think, I mean, you've been working in this field for more than 20 years. What do you think the next steps are, in particular that design professionals can take to prepare for these hotter and hotter temperatures in our in our uh, in and our, around our buildings and in our communities, what what's the what's the appropriate response for design professionals, yeah. developers, so, landscapers? 
so I, I think, you know, from going to the actual, the green roof, green wall, starting right at the plants you're using, some plants are really just better suited for producing that cooler surface because of their large leaf area. Now you have to design it so the water is there as well, uh, otherwise it, it doesn't work. And I, I really think there's an opportunity to do some, add some greenery into these pieces of infrastructure that we're trying to promote, uh, these engineered surfaces, so that they, you, you get a larger cooling effect. Uh, the other uh, thing I think we need to think about is if you're designing a building from scratch, you know, you have a blank palette, well, design it so the roof and the walls can be, the, you know, their surfaces can be greened and then max oriented and maximized to cool the building. So if we think about this, be, you know, not as an afterthought, oh, we have a blank roof, let's put a green roof on it, but no, design the building with a green roof in mind, but a green roof to maximize, in this case, uh, cooling the surface. Uh, you know, and as we, you know, go through and retrofit buildings in urban areas or tear them down and rebuild them, I, I really think we should be thinking about this. The other thing we have to think about, uh, we've talked about it a little bit today, um, is this whole idea of water. So to get this effect from green infrastructure, we need water. Uh, if it's bone dry, you can't really get that evaporative cooling effect. And uh, plus, you know, the plants are stressed and, you know, um, they put more of their effort to keeping their roots alive and their leaves alive. So to get these benefits, we really need to make sure there's sufficient water. And in a time like this, where you're not getting the rainfall and there's a lot of demands on water resources, uh, you have to have really an integrated approach to managing water, both in the building scale, so at, in the building, but also uh, in, in the city itself. So uh, make, you know, making better use of um, managing the water that's in ravines, that's in lakes, rivers, et cetera, but also the water that is essentially let go as waste. Uh, whether that's in rural areas or in, in urban areas, and trying to capture water that uh, and reuse water that normally we just literally flush down the drain, so to speak. So um, there's a lot of components to that, but there are a lot of these systems that if you manage, for example, the gray water properly, so the water you use, wash your hands, wash your dishes, et cetera, it could be reused in a way that can benefit green infrastructure. Um, it will rain eventually, we will get rain. And I think now it's really important to think about should we capture a portion of that rainwater and store for, for future use? Um, and I'm not original here. This has all been done before, you know, linking green roofs with rainwater harvesting. Uh, it's just a matter of if it's right for your area, taking a look at that type of approach to designing green roofs. Green roofs integrated with gray water management. Again, I'm not original here. I thought that it's been done. It's just a matter of taking a look at what's, what's been done and seeing what is appropriate for my building, for my, um, uh, for my urban region. Uh, but I think when we think of water, 
we have to really think about it more broadly than we usually do. And we have to think about it, how the different scale, how, you know, for example, the urban scale has to interact with the building scale. Well, that's really uh, interesting. So, you know, we, in order to have uh, effective um, activity uh, in terms of reducing the urban heat island and using green infrastructure for that purpose, we've got to have, ensure that those uh, green infrastructure systems have uh, adequate supplies of water, particularly during hot and dry periods of time. And I think you're suggesting that there, there's a lot of water that's being wasted right now that might be available for capture, reuse, and um, repurposing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, you, we can go further. I, I, you know, we could go further than this. That water that is flowing, you know, the gray water, even the wastewater, is full of stuff that can be actually mined from that and reused. Not just the water itself. Some of these things we call pollutants are actually quite valuable. If we know, and if we know how to reuse them. Um, one thing, you know, we talked a lot about green infrastructure in the urban heat island, all the benefits. Um, there are other things that can be done to cool a surface in a city. Um, some people talk about, a, I call it a blue roof, just wetting a surface will lead to cooling a surface, but that takes water. <laughs> you have to get the water from somewhere. Uh, reflective, highly reflective surfaces. Uh, will, will work to cool a surface because they reflect the sunlight. Uh, just if you go that direction, which is um, you have to realize that you have to keep those surfaces clean. They have to be kept or, or they, they quickly go to gray and you lose some of the benefit. But uh, that's certainly another option. And you have to be also careful about where you reflect that energy, where that energy ultimately where you're goes. Yeah, you could because reflect it right it into goes, another building. If it goes right into the windows of the adjacent building, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's it not won't doing, go down it, very well. Yeah, um, yeah, you may find yourself, yes, at the uh, fighting other things. And mm -hmm. finally, you know, as on a city scale, um, reductions in traffic, I think, would have a big impact because there's a lot of waste heat that comes off vehicles. So the, there, there are many reasons why a city might look at traffic reduction, uh, but uh, this is one of them. Um, so green streets could help reduce traffic and provide opportunities for more green infrastructure, right? And in Dealing fact, you could define a green street as one that has reduced traffic. That could be one of the yeah. characteristics of a green street. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I think we really you know, uh, need to think seriously about um, that type of policy in dense urban areas where traffic probably is contributing to um, the uh, urban heat island, as well as mm -hmm. greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, all the other thing traffic uh, contributes to. So uh, it, it's, it, it's another wrinkle in this, but it's also another plank and another bullet strategic bullet that an urban government can look at in terms of reducing the summer temperatures and reducing the urban heat island mm -hmm. well hey brad thank you so much for your insights and your time um it's clear from our discussion that uh that green infrastructure can not only help us manage the urban heat island uh effect but a lot of other aspects and challenges associated with um, our ever and rapidly emerging urban 
communities as well. So I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners. Keep up the great work. We'll look forward to future studies and and contributions and um, take care. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for uh, joining our podcast today. I hope you've enjoyed the information available to you. If you want more information, go to the Living Architecture Academy, which is our online training uh, portal, which has more information about the technologies that we've talked about today. Um, And you can also join us at greenroofs.org, where we have a lot of information available. Um, Upcoming events include our big uh, gathering, Cities Alive, which will be in Philadelphia, October 16th and 19th. And we look forward to uh, seeing you as we work towards healthier, greener, uh, more prosperous and uh, economically viable communities using uh, all the green infrastructure assets that are available to us. Thank you, everyone.